Hey there, Film Buds. Welcome back to the Film Buds podcast. I am your host, Paul. And I'm Lauren. And uh, if you didn't know, it's March. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and with, with March, uh, not only comes a new theme for the show, but also we're currently in Women's History Month. Woo! Congrats, women. Happy birthday. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's what it means. <laughs> <laughs> um... So we decided to, uh, in honor of Women's History Month, you know, if you if you subscribe to the newsletter, which you should, uh, you already knew that this was going to be an entire month dedicated to women in film. Um, so, yeah, uh, pretty much all month long, we're going to be looking at, in particular, women directors. You know, women have have been a part of the film industry in a lot of, a lot of different ways. Um, but we decided that we would try and, and really hone in on, on women who, who sat in the director's chair. And so we're going to kind of go all over um, in terms of, of topics and content. But it's all going to be, you know, a big celebratory um, month for women in, in the film industry. Um, dear, are you excited for what are you, what are you What are you looking forward to? Am I excited for it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess. Um, it's, especially since we're focusing on women directors, um, it is, it's a, it's a harder find, you know, like you said, there, there have been women in, in the film industry basically since the beginning of it, whether if they've been on, on screen itself or behind the camera, um, but having a woman director, the director's chair is such like a, it's basically like the, the president of the production. Like you, you get to make all the shots, you know, you can pretty much do whatever you think is best. And like, yeah, of course you've got people who come in and, and give their personal opinions about how it should go. But for the most part, like, you know, you're, you're God. And so it's, it's so rare for um females to be in that position of of power in you know in a production so i'm i'm excited to see see what these these women directors bring forward we haven't we've had a few um women directors throughout our our stint on on the film buds um but like it's going to be it's going to be nice to have a whole month dedicated to 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 the gender that I I associate with, huzzah! Um, I mean, you're absolutely right in terms of it not being a particularly the the especially the title of director being not something that has been, um, especially in in Hollywood and in big movies and stuff like that. You know, there's a long history that's very you know rich of women directing independent films but as far as like big studio films and things like that um and hollywood productions it's pretty rare um for a little factoid that sort of highlights how rare it is across the 93 academy awards that we have had only two have uh only two female directors uh have ever won for best director. Well, then there we go. That I think that just made my point. <laughs> um, so we filled a whole month with with <laughs> with women, and I think that that's you know pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, 
the the two women, by the way, in case you were curious, um, were Chloe Zhao, mm-hmm. who was also the first um, Asian woman to win, you know, Best Director. Um, and the other one came in 2010, I believe, with Catherine Bigelow's Hurt Locker. Okay. So also, they've only happened within the last 12 years. Yeah, again, you know, it's... It's so strange. Um, you know, you go to school and you learn all of these things about history. And it's it's a fascinating thing to, to live through active history happening. And not just like, you know... Um, Big geopolitical events. Yeah, but like little things. Like we having the first, you know, female Asian director. Like that's... I can't believe we haven't gotten there already. You know, we, we keep doing these things, but sometimes it's like, it's, it's, it's almost like pulling teeth to get like things that you would assume had ha- happened, you know, before you were even born. And yet here we are almost in our thirties and like, we're just hitting some firsts. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty, that's pretty wild. No, absolutely. Um, and so... For a little background, in case any of you aren't familiar with where Women's History Month comes from, um, it actually is in March because International Women's Day is on March 8th. Um, the the sort of push for um, all of this actually goes back to 1911. Um, wow! Yeah, where Women's History... Uh, where well international women's day was was first founded uh, and it started in the united states and so there was women's day from 1911 until 1978 where uh, a district in sonoma california created women's history week uh starting the the week of march 8th um a year later it had spread out to a few different colleges um, in particular, Sarah Lawrence. And um, by 1980, Jimmy Carter had used a presidential proclamation to declare the week of March 8th National Women's History Week. Um, and, you know, it sort of coasted along in that aspect for a year. And then by 1981, uh, a senator and a representative created the Joint Congressional Resolution for History Week, uh, which was then passed. And in 1987, uh, after being petitioned by the National Women's History Project, Congress uh, passed a, a publication that designated the month of March as Women's History Month. Um, and so pretty much since then we've had... A, uh, a National Women's History Month. So it's it started with just a day back in 1911, and then by the time that you hit 87 uh, and 88, it becomes uh, a full-fledged month. Number one, um, that is a long, long time for... We trudged through history for it to have just been like 40 years ago when they finally got this thing going. Um... And two, I think it's hilarious that they had Women's History Day in 1911 before women had the right to vote. (laughs) Yeah, well, and and that also kind of does go to the fact that, like, the early part of the 20th century had a lot of 
uh, women's rights activism, you know, and some of it was also tied up with the temperance movement Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, The temperance movement, for those who don't know, was essentially the anti-alcohol, the the alcohol uh, abolitionist movement was the temperance guild or the temperance leagues. And it was largely led by women, in particular, especially religious women. Um, and Which a is lot funny of, because Jesus turned water into wine. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it, it started out as... Uh, or Both of those things kind of conflated into each other. And so that's also, interestingly enough, when you start to get into the history of it, you know, uh, 1920... Both alcohol is prohibited and women get the right to vote. And I should I should specify white women. Yeah, that's fair. Got the right to vote. Um so that's a little bit of a of a background um on Women's History Month. And our first episode for Women in Film is about two films that actually came out last year. Um because I thought that we could go and, and look at you know, like a really modern context and then sort of travel both backwards in time and around the world and into different genres throughout the month. See. Uh, So we're beginning with Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, which, you know, if she wins, she'll be, she's nominated for Best Director, if I'm not mistaken, for Power of the Dog at the Oscars. So so then she'll be our third. If she wins, she'll be our third one. All right, well... (laughs) Here's here's to hoping. Um, so we're going to be doing The Power of the Dog, which is a, a Western uh, that's streaming on Netflix. And we're also going to be talking about uh, Julia Ducarneau's uh, Titan, which is a French film. Um, and we talked about it a little bit last week. Um, but it's just such a such a fascinating movie that we kind of decided that it would be a really good idea to to go and give it full attention. In, in an episode. No, yeah, honestly, I, you know, not to get too ahead of myself, but, like, these two movies have, like, weirdly, like, similar themes. I was gonna talk about that, yeah. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm curious to, to, to dive into that further. <laughs> well, then let's go ahead and jump into it. Uh, we'll be starting with Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, and as always, we have a clip, so let's take a listen. Twenty-five years since our first run together. Nineteen hundred and nothing. It's a long time. What's it doing? Getting mixed up with her. You are marvelous, Rose. We were married Sunday. So that was Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. Uh, It is directed and written by Jane Campion. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Jesse Plemons, Kirsten Dunst, and Cody Smith-McPhee. And the premise is charismatic rancher Phil Burbank inspires fear and awe in those around him. When his brother brings home a new wife and her son, Phil, and her son, Phil torments them until he finds himself exposed to the possibility of love. 
Wow. Wow, wow, wow. You know, I straight up watched this movie without knowing that that was the the description of this film. <laughs> um, so I'll give a little bit of like a very brief overview on Jane Campion's background and then you can jump into talking about it. Sure. Okay. So Jane is from New Zealand. Uh, she is the, she was born in 1954 and she's the child of theater professionals. They had their own actor troupe in New Zealand. Um, but partially because of her upbringing, she pretty much rejected the idea of getting into theater or something like that. And so she actually went and graduated uh, with a degree in anthropology. And a year after she graduated college, she went to London she did, you know, a few other pursuits there. She attended a school there. Um, and she also eventually got into painting. Oh. But she started to find painting to be a limiting art form. And so she started to experiment with, um, with other artistic pursuits. And she started making short films. Uh, and this was in 82 as her first short film. And so she did quite a few shorts and then a little bit of a TV series. And then she started to uh, direct features. Uh, one of her big ones is The Piano, The Portrait of a Lady. Um, and then she also did uh, Bright Star in 2008. And another recent thing that she's known for is a, a miniseries, or TV show, I guess it is technically, that lasted for four years. Um, called Top of the Lake, which, uh, had, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, Elizabeth Moss, um, who some of you might know from the 2019 Invisible Man or the show Mad Men, um, or Handmaiden's Tale. And... Oh, I was like, man, who was she in Mad Men? <laughs> <laughs> Peggy! Uh, and so then she, she finally, um read this book of the same name as the film, The Power of the Dog. Um, and she absolutely fell in love with it and snatched up the rights to it and made the film. So, dear, what did you think of The Power of the Dog? I think it's really funny that they call him charismatic. <laughs> I think that that's number one, the first lie of that, of that um, description. Because at first I thought they were talking about Jesse Plemons' character, and I was like, yeah, I guess you could call him charismatic. Like, sure, whatever. He's he's kind of quiet, you know. Obviously the, the beta of this brother relationship, because his brother is an entire asshole, you know, just terrible person and can, can I mean I guess he can be nice to the people that he wants to be nice to but those are very few and far between to the point where he like actively starts to to belittle the the woman that Jesse Plemons ends up um you know falling in love with and marrying well love is I guess a a stretch marrying um they find mutual partnership in marriage you know, it's it's very like a, well, there's nobody else. You're good. I'll do it. Kind of, kind of <laughs> relationship. Because it just kind of happens out of nowhere. But that's not my point. Um, Phil, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, is, is a complicated man, 
I would say. Um, I really, I really enjoyed the movie. I thought that, um, the, the story was, was simple when it needed to be and was big when it, when it felt the urge to, um, I kind of just got lost in this time period of, like, rural 20s America, and I thought that that was just such an interesting and under-looked-at part of American history, because it really still felt like the 1800s, except for the fact that every once in a while they would dress more 20s, or they would say something that, like, just didn't fit with the previous time period, and it was just, it was really interesting. Um, I thought that everybody did a phenomenal job. Um, you know, um, I think that he's doing a much different performance than he does as Doctor Strange, which is, I mean, I guess not hard, but they're kind of the same. They're kind of just, like, pompous assholes, but, like, at least Strange, like, comes around to the other side and is like, I understand what's wrong with me because my hands are stupid. Um, whereas, like, Phil doesn't ever do that. No, Phil does not learn. No, he doesn't, but he doesn't want to because he's the smartest guy in the room. Yeah, so, um, the movie is, is very, it is slow, but it is tense throughout. And all of that tension comes essentially from the kind of emotional terrorism that Phil inflicts upon everyone. Um, he's he like is, a hose, just spraying everybody with hatred. He's he's just an oppressive force. You know, he's one of those people that um, that everyone walks on eggshells around, that no one wants to really get on the bad side of, because he is just an incredibly abrasive, demeaning, cruel person. He's, he's really, truly cruel in many ways. Yeah. Um, and the, the whole, you know, idea is that George and Phil are ranchers and they've both been very successful at it. And Phil goes and does all the manual labor stuff and George does all of the the like financing of it and the the sort of higher up operations of what it means to be a landowner and a ranch owner. Um but about like halfish way through the movie, maybe more, you finally learn that like Phil went to the same sort of nice college upbringing that George went to and that he's like this top of his class, great mind kind of person. And you get little hints of that, I think, throughout with, like, his his incredible musical ability. Yeah, just prodigy in every way, but also, like, aggressively rebelling against how fantastic he is by rubbing it in everybody's face. And, and what's also interesting is he does this whole put-on-show thing where it's he, he intentionally tries to make himself not that person you know he talks with more of a twang than george does and he plays in particular the banjo you know and um he roughs around with the boys and and he tells the legend of bronco henry and and you know it's this and he even goes out and like when he bathes quote he like coats himself with mud 
and like goes and like swims in a in a lake even though they've got like running water they've got a an indoor hot water tub like you know very hoity-toity for the times in the area and so he's over here like intentionally trying to remove all of the sort of airs that came with his very privileged upbringing to kind of also come across as this like uber masculine dude and he's just an absolute prick <laughs> well yeah i mean honestly when you're when you're fighting who you are as a human being to such a degree that you hate yourself you're going to hate everybody else around you as well and i mm-hmm. and i honestly think that he does hate a lot of himself mhm you know, that's why he also, like, chooses to... He's a bully. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he he's that very classic, you know, version of a bully where instead of going, you know, maybe it's my fault, maybe these are my issues and I'm going to deal with them myself. Instead, I'm going to put my pain onto somebody else to make me feel bigger, better, faster, stronger, you know, whatever, in order to to maybe find some something about myself that i can i can enjoy but at the end of the day it's always detrimental you know Mm -hmm. the more you put somebody down the more the people fear you and then you never get to have anybody close to you so then that makes you hate yourself more so it's just a constant cycle absolutely um and you know with with george George is, is perfectly fine being himself george is totally fine with being george the thing that he doesn't like is how he knows for a fact that being vulnerable in any way, even to his brother, will open him up for mocking. And so he ends up just shutting down all around the time. Him. Um, because it's easier for him that way. Yeah, he just stays quiet. He doesn't poke any buttons. He doesn't. He doesn't prod the bull. Yeah, and so you know he he just he knows his brother's triggers and so he just tries to just not touch any of them yeah in any kind of way um and it's a very unhealthy dynamic and that's also why he's he's drawn to rose you know and it's a very tender moment when he essentially tells her that he's happy to no longer be alone oh yeah that is but that's why i was like i think that they both kind of found what they were needing in the other but it wasn't like a like a romantic like you know I could never imagine myself with anyone else kind of thing. It's, I guess you have to really think about the idea of, like, it being a small town, there not being a lot of options, and, like, you, you know, this is as good as it probably would get, and, and that's okay. And he's kind, you know? He came to the the, the little hotel bed and breakfast thing that she ran, the inn kind of thing, and he served you know, plates and stuff for the guests and helped manage everything and sort of used his sway in the town to rile down the the sort of situation that was getting out of hand in the dining room. No, yeah. Um, But I guess, you know, I'm not trying to, I guess, belittle their relationship by any means, but I also think that, you know, they were, they'd probably known each other for like, what, what would you say, like a week at that point before they were like, all right, I think we're going to get married. I think more time passes than we think. I think that the movie is very fluid with time. You don't get a lot of... The only, like, few hints that you get about, like, time changing 
are seasonal shifts. So, like, you see snow on the ground, it's winter, then you see um, her planting the flowers, we know that we've transitioned into spring. Mm -hmm. So, like, I think that those are really meant to be, like, our, our only hints at passage of time. Okay. But I think it's a little bit longer than it does appear on the movie. I will say that about the film, like, this could have been a week. You know? Well, then I'm gonna, I'll say that the uh, a quarter of the year goes mm-hmm. by and they're like, all right, we're married. She lives here now. You've got to accept this. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, it's definitely still of the times quick. There wasn't, like, a lot of, like, let's get, let's date. No, there for, wasn't courtship. For, for six years and yeah. then maybe consider being engaged for three and then getting married. You know, no, it was like, all right, I like you, you like me, you want to do this thing? Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think um, that also opens up the door for uh, us to talk about Peter our real protagonist of the whole story. Oh, yeah, the the son? Mm-hmm. So uh, the main thing of this story is essentially we're largely getting it from the son's point of view, Peter. And Peter is this uh, Cody Smith McPhee's character. If you don't know Cody Smith McPhee as an actor, um, he was in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes as uh, Jason Clark's son, the one that hangs out with the orangutan. Um, he was in X-Men Apocalypse and X-Men Dark Phoenix as Nightcrawler. Um, is he really the person underneath all of that, that makeup? Mm-hmm, yeah. Cause he's got the right build for Nightcrawler. No, I get that. It's just, you know, it, it was hard to, to really see him through all of the rest of that movie that's terrible. No, that's fair. Um, he's this very, um, he's a very lanky young man. Yes. He is toothpick thin and probably pushing six foot. Like, he's just tall and bony. I'm sure he's probably over six feet. Um, and so... But that's beside the point. He also is, you know, not at all anyone's, you know, the character of, of Peter is not at all especially by Old West standards, a manly man. You know, he helps his mom in in the place that she runs. He studies a lot. He, he makes reads little a lot. paper flowers just as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And, you know, put a lot of time and effort into just, like, making these paper flowers. Yeah, because, you know, flowers are, one, hard to come by, and two, expensive, I'm sure, at that time to have shipped in. And so to give the, the place a little bit more atmosphere he's crafted for her her mom's like the mom's centerpieces all of these little handmade flowers yeah you know Um, and they're and they're honestly they're lovely and you know but he's also incredibly brilliant and he wants to be a doctor um and so what ends up happening is he becomes in particular a very strong target for phil's ire and this is when the film starts to really get into the meat of what it's about which is Phil's repressed homosexuality. Yeah, he buried it. <laughs> and that's what I meant, you know, by him, like, actively hating himself. Yeah. Um, the only time that he gives to himself to sort of be himself are these trips that he takes to bathe, where he literally, like, has a little tunnel 
that he crawls through to get to this secret lagoon area that no one else gets to. So that way he can finally be alone. And, you know, the film sort of peppers out throughout all of these moments um, where he talks about Bronco Henry. And finally Phil, you know, gets to the heart of who... Or finally Peter gets to the heart of who Phil is when he gets to this watering hole and he finds these uh, magazines of, like, nude photos of men that have Bronco Henry's name on it, and he sees Phil out there, and he finally gets to the... I think that Peter starts to realize very quickly exactly what's going on mm-hmm. with Phil. Um, and it becomes this... Um, this very interesting build toward the toward the finale. Well, yeah, no, I love the scene, like, right after he, he, like, discovers all of this evidence and it's, like, putting two and two together. And then they have this moment where he's, like, smoking a cigarette. Mm-hmm. And he constantly will, like, take a puff himself and then, like, hand, like, keep the cigarette in his hand and then, like, fill will take a puff off of that cigarette. And then it, they just kept going back and forth. And it was this really, like, intimate moment. But, you know, it was... That's, like, really the moment where, like, his relationship, I think, turns and being, like, maybe this kid is also mm-hmm. like me. And, like, I'm willing to lay off of, you know, calling him slurs in front of my boys Mm-hmm. in order to maybe finally have a human connection. Well, and, you know, you talked about the the sort of, um, you know, vaguely erotic moment of them sharing this cigarette. Um, there's also this incredibly sensual moment. Uh, there are two very telling also about Phil and his inability to let go of Bronco Henry that definitely tips the hat toward Bronco Henry was not just some guy that he knew, but probably his first and only lover. Uh, and the they're both incredibly sensual. And one of them is, uh, and the first one that really hints at like, oh, they used to be a thing, is when he starts to like clean Bronco Henry's saddle. Mm. He still has the saddle, um and he can't sleep that night, um, that uh, Kirsten Dunst is taking a bath. And so he goes out to, you know, the barn, and he gets the saddle, and it's this very sensual moment of him very tenderly, you know, treating it with leather conditioner and rubbing it down and, and, you know, touching the supple leather of the the saddle and things like that. And it's, it's like a very, very sensual moment between, like, him and this saddle. And then the next one is him with the handkerchief. Yes. So, I'm not even going to lie. Like, you're talking about all the sensuality with with this eye and the, the saddle. And I literally was like, oh, he's, like, cleaning his saddle. Like, I hadn't connected that that was anybody's other than his own. Mm-hmm. You know, it looked like something that you would do in Red Dead Redemption, you know, over here being like, all right, I got to take care of my stuff because I'm a Westerner, mm-hmm. you know, and these are the times that we live in. So, like, for me, I hadn't even connected that that was Bronco Henry's saddle 
directly. Mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, he's doing, he can't sleep because he's an asshole and there's a woman in the house and he's mad about it because he doesn't like her. And so, like, at that point, I was like, oh, he's going out to do just, like, chores or something to keep his mind off of, you know, burning the house down. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is he has this whole moment by the by the waterside with a, a handkerchief that, that is... That one. That one is a for sure <laughs> ring-a-ding-dinger. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. is this where this is going, you say? It's a great scene. Oh, yeah. Um, and then also throughout the movie... You know, going again back to to sort of the Phil character a little bit, it's it's also then starkly contrasted against these moments of just like violent outburst. Um, the most notable of which is most assuredly when he, in a fit of rage, um, starts to just like slap the shit out of a horse uh with like a i don't know what he he picked up it was like a piece of leather or something no yeah i think it was something that was like used for you know maybe to put in between the saddle and the horse itself or whatever but it was just like yeah a piece of cloth leather yeah and and he just starts to hold this horse by the reins and just slap the tar out of this horse with that yeah it's a it's a very it's shocking yeah (laughs) that's a word for it it's it's upsetting. It is. It's it's very upsetting. Um, and the opening, you know for a fact that there is going to ultimately be some sort of confrontation between Phil and Peter because the opening line of the movie is Peter essentially saying, like, when his dad died, he promised his mother that he would make sure that she was happy and, and, and cared for. And so what sort of son would he be if he didn't take care of his mother? And, like, the main person that starts to kind of erode under the, the, the antagonism that Phil can put out is Rose, the mother. It starts to just absolutely eat away at her. She becomes his exact target. Well, um, yeah, because also, you know, that transition moment after he starts to let up on Peter, he, like, doubles down on Rose to the point where she gets a horrifying drinking problem. And is just falling apart, you mm-hmm. know, at the seams. And because also, like, she has to live with somebody who is who is her trigger as well. Who is, you know, the worst person for her to possibly live with is, like, her everyday, like, hey, how's it going? You know, and he, and there he is. Yeah. Being his, his most, you know, aggressive self. Yeah, it's omnipresent. She never gets a reprieve from him. Yeah. He's always on when she's when she's around. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a really really interesting movie, and it ends with a a line from the Bible, which is where it gets its title from. Um, and so the 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 line comes from Psalms twenty two. And um, I thought that it was really interesting. I gave it a little bit of a read, and I think that it. It definitely, I think, I see why appeals to Peter as a a Bible verse. Because a lot of it is about this guy who just feels mocked and belittled and pressed upon. And he talks about being surrounded by, you know, these 
these strong bulls and these dogs that bite. And it has all of this kind of almost Western, you know, on a certain level, iconography. And the line that he says is, deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Uh, and I think it's pretty safe to say that that the dog in reference, the power of the dog, is Phil's loathing that just seeps out of everything. Mm-hmm. And so I think that for Peter, deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog, was 100% sort of like a like a guiding sentiment, you know? Yeah. Instruction, almost. Mm-hmm. Um... The book uh, that it's based on came out in 67. And um, apparently the biggest thing that is omitted is chapter two of the book is completely gone. And it's a whole section where it's told from the perspective of the home life of Rose, Peter, and... Uh, his late father before he died. Oh, yeah, they straight up, there is no father in the no. movie. Um, the dad has already killed himself. And um, and we've got the family as it's left. And apparently the book, chapter two, is all about the dad and how he had a really hard time getting people to accept him and his family. And, you know, even though most people didn't say anything outright, there were some raised eyebrows about his son. And he was really having a hard go of it. And in particular, kept on getting bullied by a character that they don't name as Phil. They just call him the rancher. Oh, I think that, <laughs> I think that it is him. And so, who else could it be? Yeah, it's it's very obviously him, but he doesn't go out and kind of show his hand in the book immediately. And apparently, this rancher was just a son of a bitch to his dad, and openly mocked Peter to the father directly. Mm-hmm. And he kind of realized that like this life was never going to be normal and he's for his son and he starts drinking more and you know everything just sort of gets worse from there and ultimately he finally takes his own life copy wow yeah um so that's that's the biggest omission from the book to um to the screen um there are there's another piece of work also that is titled the power of the dog and that's a poem by Rudyard Kipling. And I again thought that there were some interesting um, sort of thematic touchstones, a little verse from the, from the poem. There is sorrow enough in the natural way from men and women to fill our day. And when we are certain of sorrow in store, why do we always arrange for more? Brothers and sisters, I bid you beware of giving your heart to a dog to tear. Mm. Wow. I mean, you could still tell people that today and they'd be like, <laughs> no, I can change them. <laughs> but what if I fix them? Um, so those are some some sort of interesting little thematic tie-ins. Um, it's a really rich film. I would categorize it as a revisionist Western. 
yeah. Um, honestly, like, I really enjoyed it. And, like, Western is a hard bite for me when it comes to movies. Because, like, there are just a lot of, like, samey, same old Westerns, you know? Mm-hmm. John Wayne Westerns. There, there's a fuck. There's, there's hundreds of them. You know. Well, and the revisionist westerns are intended to be, not these glorified, you know, one the West grand cowboys and riding into the sunset and gunfights and westward expansion. I think that every <laughs> uh, every generation has its version of like a nostalgic moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that the westerns when they were popular when they came out was like a people looking back on a time and going, "Now that you was, were free. That was a time to be alive. This time, this time right here, ugh. Gosh, so tied down by people stuff. And so revisionist westerns are things, for example, like in a in a modern context, keeping in mind that like modern we're going all the way back to the seventies as well. Um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, uh, the outlaw Josie Wales, Dances with Wolves, mm-hmm. Unforgiven. Okay, I could get into more revisionist western outlook because also the the idea of the west being like this this great thing is is a horribly misguided mindset, you know, like maybe you were free, but there was also like a lot that all that freedom gave, like you lost in, in, you know, in reality. Yeah. Cause like it was a hard life. And I think that this movie also really touches on the fact that like, it is hard to be, you know, out there all of the time in the, in the Western, you know, mindset being a rancher isn't something that you just do. No. It's an entire it's an entire way of life. And it is also emotionally daunting. Mm-hmm. You know, you you sometimes don't see loved ones for long stretches of time. You can be very isolated depending on where you are. Um and yeah, if you're any kind of different depending on the town that you're in, that's a big problem. No, oh, yeah. And it's like, what, you're you're going to hop in your car and you're going to drive somewhere else? No. And you can't just start a new ranch somewhere. That's an undertaking. And also, like, you know, this is, this is not a career. This is not a job. This is every day. This is a lifestyle. This is you wake up and you do this. You don't get to have, you know, your free time to maybe do really anything else. You yeah. don't have any hobbies. This is your entire life. No, absolutely. You know, the only reason that George is able to have any kind of secondary thing is because he did lean into the honesty of who he was and the fact that he was an educated man, and he became the owner of that ranch. Mm-hmm. And, and he's very comfortable with that fact. And, you know, his, his brother may have some of this more... Um, you know, toxic mask kind of authority, you know, where the tough men listen to him and stuff like that. But George is the real powerful one. You know, George is the one that knows the governor. George is the one that actually has buying power, which, you know, even back then was was much greater power than any sort of just a ranch hand had. No, yeah. So, like, no, I... I'm not here for any movie that's like, isn't it fun? <laughs> To be out here. Yeah. 
you're looking at that through the the rosiest of rose tinted glasses. Yeah. Because that's that's not the case. No, people were assholes then, they're assholes now. Let's let's call a spade a spade, guys. Yeah. Um so if you had to give the power of the dog a score out of five, what would you give it, dear? Um, I think that I'm gonna give the power of the dog a four and a half. Okay. Um, I I really enjoyed this movie. I thought that it was really an interesting ride. Um, it had a lot of twists and turns that I was genuinely not expecting. Um. So what's your half point off for? I'm thinking. Okay. I don't know for whipping that horse. <laughs> <laughs> um. No, yeah, I think that, gosh, we haven't talked about Kirsten Dunst at all. Maybe my half point off is for her. She just, she was just there. She was. I think she did a good job with the character, but I certainly wouldn't say that it's like the most groundbreaking Kirsten Dunst performance I've seen. I thought she did great with it, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't like a, a career all time high, I think, performance for me from her. No, yeah, I think that for me, it could have been anyone, and it's not just her. And I think that that has a lot to say. You know, when you think of this character in your brain, do you see her or do you see just anybody? You no, know, absolutely. I think, and I think that that's probably where I'm going to, you know, take my half point off. I think that she was probably of the of our four lead characters. She was she was my she was fine. Her best scene was I think the piano scene. Oh yeah, I really enjoyed that scene and I really enjoyed the alley. Um Mm, she had a lot of like really sad lady moments in this movie where I thought she did a phenomenal job and then after that I was like, okay. You know, I think that her beginning part was just fine. Um, her being drunk. <laughs> yeah, Kirsten. <laughs> um, it, it was a very naturalized drunk, I'll be oh, honest. Yeah. It was great. Um, If I had to give it a score, I think I'll go... It's hard, right? Yeah. I think I'm going to give it a five. You know, I could definitely knock it down to a four and a half just sort of on the fact that I think time is a little bit wibbly. And what is a very protracted period of time does seem to take place in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think I'm going to go with a tentative five on it. I really, I really quite enjoyed it a lot. And I think that it's... Um, I understand why this book... Um, that the movie is based on was also like a touchstone for other authors you know this mm-hmm. is the book that apparently was the a inspiration not the inspiration but an inspiration for the book Brokeback Mountain um, and I think you definitely see a lot of those tones and textures and things like that with it um, so- another another note um, Jesse Plemons and Benedict Cumberbatch are not related <laughs> there is no way that I could ever look at those two people and go, no, those are brothers. Especially once I saw the parents, but, um, (laughs) that's, um, that's all that we have for the power of the dog. And now we'll move on to, to 10. Surprise. We don't have a clip. Um, (laughs) I tried to find one and because this movie is entirely in French, they just cut the trailer without 
any dialogue. It is just moody atmosphere shots and soundtrack, and that is all that the trailer is. Um, and so we don't actually have a trailer for this one. In a world <laughs> where a woman has sex with a car. Right. <laughs> um, so the movie is uh, directed, this is Titan, it came out in 2021. It's directed by Julia Ducarneau. Um, it is written by her as well, and she had two writing consultants, Jacques... Akoti and Simonetta Greggio. I'm sorry if I butchered those names. Um, I didn't realize that I would need those as well at the time. So um, it stars, our principal cast members are Agatha Roussel and Vincent Linden. And our premise is following a series of unexplained crimes, a father is reunited with the son who has been missing for ten years. Titan, a metal highly resistant to heat and corrosion with high tensile strength alloys. That's the that's the official synopsis. That's the official one? Mm-hmm. I don't know who wrote that, but they didn't watch this movie. Um... So, for a little bit of background on our director, uh, Julia Ducarneau, she is French. Uh, she was born in 1983, and her parents were both doctors. Oh. Her uh, mother was a gynecologist, and her father was a dermatologist. Ists. And she attended uh, school for screenwriting she did a short film where uh, a woman's uh, shed her skin after getting a stomach bug. And she did a, a, another short film. Uh, she did a TV film about a bulimic seeking revenge on her college tormentor. Wow. Um, and then she did her big breakout feature in 2016, Raw. Which, the premise is, for those who don't know, I haven't seen Raw. I'm interested in seeing it. A vegetarian inadvertently eats meat. Uh, and after she gets the taste for, like, raw flesh, she can't shake it off. And it becomes this mounting obsession of her needing to consume raw flesh. There's a theme happening here of the things that of this director has <laughs> made. There's a lot of, like, weird body stuff and, and a lot of of strange habits. Yeah. Um, so then she made Titan, which won um, several awards and honors, and it was on the film circuit. And actually, it made its way to the Cannes Film Festival. And it ended up winning the top prize at the Cannes Film Festival, the, uh, the Palme d'Or. And... As a fun little connection to our previous movie, uh, they're the, if I'm not mistaken, Ducourneau is the second f director to win the Palme d'Or, and the first one was Jane Campion in 1993 for her film The Piano. So, we're going to pretend like we did this on purpose. <laughs> Woo! Yay us! Um, in a little funny twist, normally that award is saved for the last part of the night. Um, 
and there was a mistranslation with the jury president at the time, Spike Lee. And he thought, apparently what they said was like, give out the first award. And he thought that they had said something to the effect of like, you know, reveal who's in first. And so he was like, oh, okay, well, I'll go out and, and present the Palme d'Or then. <laughs> ha. Um, That's perfect. <laughs> so everybody can go home now. It doesn't matter. <laughs> the rest we of picked it, everyone. Yeah, everybody else is under this person. Good night. Um, <laughs> so, dear, what did you think of Titan? Wow, what a what a roller coaster ride of a movie. Um I could really separate this movie into chapters of like events that happen. Because for the most part, there is really like no real plot. It is a lot of like the life and times of this one chick as she just kind of skates the rules of of reality a little bit you know she's a she's a dancer she she dances on cars and um ends up killing a dude and then i guess gets the taste for killing and starts doing that some more but in the middle of that she has sex with a car and then gets impregnated by said car. But that is really like the B or C story of this movie. And then it's just like her on the run. And then being mistaken for this guy's lost son. And him taking her in. And then her playing make-believe for a little bit while her, her very rapid pregnancy is happening. And she keeps trying to conceal it. It's just such, such a... It, it's like a Big Brother movie, you know, where you're just kind of like a fly on the wall of this person's crazy life. Um, and there's a lot of weird body horror things in this that, like, definitely, like, will make your skin crawl. Um, but yeah, no, it was just... I had no idea what was going to happen next. And we have watched a lot of movies. We have watched a lot of horror movies together. And I just had... This movie, for me, was almost like Sorry to Bother You, where it starts out in one lane, and then we go 16 lanes over, and then we end up in China or something. I don't know. I don't know where this highway goes at this point anymore. And you're just kind of stuck. You're like, I have to finish this. I have to know how it ends, because otherwise I will have zero closure. And then we got there, and I was like, what? So confusing such a weird ride i i'm i think about this movie a lot because of all of the strange things that i've never seen on a film done before shown to me all condensed into one movie no i think that that's all very fair um you're absolutely right it is very much a body horror film but the body horror really with the exception of like the the end of the movie most of the body horror exists in the first part of the movie, more so. In the mm-hmm. first, like, third-ish to, to, like, half. Is where a lot of the, the body horror and a lot of the, like, violence and stuff like that comes from. Um, and then it becomes this strange... 
to your point, sort of character study for a little while. You know, it's it's almost it is almost like we could have put like a little intermission in this thing, and like this is the second half of the show, and that's the first half of the show. You know, kind of a thing, um, where it has this this very different tone because she goes from being it's a fascinating movie she goes from being this very overtly femme woman you know very sexualized it's not just that she's dancing like on a car like she is like twerking on top of this car and you're you're for so much of it to your point of like for so much of that first part, you're really not sure how much you can trust what you're seeing as being true. And I think we talked about it in the podcast a little bit. It's like American Psycho, where we're getting it from Christian Bale's character's perspective, and then at the end it, it turns out that like none of what we thought happened really actually happened, or Fight Club. Because mm-hmm. like for a little while, I was honestly thinking like that guy who started to you know, a little content warning for, you know, unfortunate things. That guy who started to, like, assault her in the car, for a little while I was thinking that she was hallucinating the whole car thing as a fill-in for what had actually happened to her. But then, obviously, of course, that turns out to not be the case at all. No, um, it's like a literal, literally she has sex with this car. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, to your point, there were definitely times where I was like, you know, is this a fantasy? Is mm-hmm. all of this, you know, the the moment where she's, you know, with the other dancer and, you know, they're, they're going to have sex. And then out of nowhere, she kills her too. And it was just kind of like a, is this, is it kind of like that moment in Mean Girls where all of the, they're at the mall and they're all acting like Oh, and animals. she's like, oh, it's the watering hole. Yeah. Exactly. But then we go back to reality, like, two seconds later, I was like, is she f- fantasizing about, like, killing this person, but, like, we're gonna blip back and, like, none of this would have happened? And it was like, no, she really did this. And now she's on the run. Yeah. Um, and so then, once she sort of transitions into being this this boy, this young man, she then, you know, partially because she has to be so subdued, but she really goes inward and, you know, she, like, shaves her eyebrows, she, like, shaves her head, and then at that point, you know, she's far less feminine in in appearance and also in how she presents herself, but that's also when she's going through the process of being pregnant. Yeah, and like, you know, she she starts this transition to to hiding who she is because of the the fact that she's on the run and everybody has her photo and stuff and so she's like doing the the classic like spy person thing to do where they're like I got to dye my hair and do things to make myself different. Oh my god, when she fucking breaks her nose. Oh. Huh. Oh, uh, I had forgotten about it until I started like thinking about that scene in my head and that was a rough moment, man. Mm, that one was hard to well, I had to look away. I couldn't watch her do it. Yeah. I had to actively close my eyes and just like hear the sound of her break her own nose on the edge of the sink. Yeah. Because I didn't want to see it. <laughs> yeah, without giving away too much more about, like, what happens in the movie, because some of this you just have to experience, and I'm sorry, however squeamish it'll make you, and you'll probably be like, why didn't you warn me? Oh, well. Well, um, you're getting it but now. But some of the most uncomfortable moments 
are the violence she perpetrates upon her own body. Yeah. It's horrifying in two particular scenes. The nose break is the other one. I'm not going to talk about the other one. No, that's fine. Um, <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Squeamish. Um, but didn't I like. didn't... I I also think, you know, to your point of the fact that, like, she's, you know, transitioning into somebody else's identity, basically. You know, this man has, like, fully accepted her as his missing son and, like, basically refuses to to acknowledge the fact that she is not whoever this boy is, you know, that he lost as, like, I'm assuming, like, a young child. And, like, is just like, oh, good, you're back, and now, I don't know, supposed to be, like, 17 or 20 or whatever now. But, like, you know, every time he talks about it, it's such, so, you know, like, it, it feels like he was, like, a 7 to 10-year-old when, like, he went missing. Mm-hmm. And, like, yeah, to your point, you know, while she's busy trying to pretend to be this this person that she's not, and I think that's also why she starts to just, like, cut out on talking, doesn't say anything, because, like, what if she says or does something that make, to tips this man off, you know? Right now, she's he's the best thing that she's got, and if he could kick her out, and she could be back on the run again, you know? And, and maybe, this, maybe this can, in a weird way, be, like, her reality for a little bit, and she kind of just, like, accepts that. But I, I hated her her binding. Oh yeah. It was it was the worst way to bind. It was very um just like it just aggressive and it it hurt to watch. It's a it's a even though a lot of the really big violence is gone in the second half of the movie, it becomes this much more subtle discomfort with what you're seeing her do, with the extremes you're seeing her go to, to conceal herself. Yeah. And, like, fully commits to it, you know? Like, I'll I'll give her that, you know? She was not gonna get arrested. Yeah. And it just, it's such an odd, weird experience. And, like, I wanna, I wanna, I guess, like, talk to the, the director and, like, figure out, you know, more of what the the whole idea behind this was there's a lot of like gender ambiguity 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 thank you i was such a difficult word to say um you know it was like very very fluid you know what you don't really know for a while because she just fully you know accepts her reality and just fully commits to it and you know to the point where you're like i this is this who she wants to be or is this something that is like just the here and the now would eventually she go back to dancing on cars well and i think that it's interesting you bring that up because it does have this you know this interesting through line you know of her of her taking on the identity of um adrian is the name of the of the young man that she's supposed to be. And so you're right, she does kind of choose to live so fully as Adrian, but then also in the moment where it's kind of most important for her, she does specifically finally open up and want to be um Alexis? Alexia. Alexia again. And so it's a really interesting moment um, 
because it's also when we're getting close to the to the finale of the whole thing um and so yeah it's it's this interesting choice of now finally choosing to open up in full about who she is you know at, at sort of the last possible moment in the narrative mm-hmm. um and i think it also has a, a an interesting little side sort of bc plot happening as well with the man that is her father vincent with the fact that he's trying to stay in this peak physical form you know this sort of peak masculine form Mm -hmm. and is using steroids and using them dangerously and is trying to you know bulk up and be able to do all of the pull-ups that he used to be able to do and and he's not comfortable necessarily with who he is right now and where he is right now. And so there is kind of this whole thing of a, of a strange chosen family of, of people who don't feel completely themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, really interesting emotional through line for those characters in the second half of the movie. Yeah, um... Gosh, uh, Vincent is, is such a such an interesting character as well because like he will go through these extents of like almost killing himself with steroids but then like that scene where like he's like no we're gonna dance together like you're my child you know he kisses him on the head and stuff and he's like this is this is my son adrian and he's so proud and he's like you know wants to be close to him and and does all of these things because he's just like so just like overjoyed with having his child back you know in his mind that like all of the the, these, these things that he probably used to do you know this intimacy really comes out on the forefront but then it's so it's a completely different person from the person that he puts on and the person that he wants to be to to the outward world and i just think that's like an interesting you know why why on earth do you put on this like whole ultra mask persona you know why is that your goal when in reality you are this person you are this sweet tender you know loving person but like honestly like the steroids aren't helping anything because if any you know you're using them to the point of like even being aggressive at points to the person who you love and not even intentionally it's just because of the drugs no absolutely um so there's a there it's it's a it's a very thematically rich movie um and it ends up touching a lot on some of the same ideas of the power of the dog of identity of who you are of repressing certain things um and and it's a movie it's a movie that I really honestly haven't stopped thinking about to your point as well since the first time that we watched it. Like it's it's one that has really stuck in the brain quite a lot. Mhm. Because there's just nothing like it and I can, you know, try and name a bunch of movies that have made me feel like this that have made me, you know, really watch this movie and really think about it and really just like a lot of the time go, "What?" It's kind of as surreal if I was going to pick a movie from an American context that I think it hits. Obviously, what I'm about to say is not a body horror movie, but I think it has the same sort of surreal dive in the narrative is Spring Breakers. 
Yes, yes. I, I think that that's a completely fair... Weird hypnotic visuals, this kind of, you know... Other Full world. commitment to its ideals, no matter how surreal and weird it yeah, gets. Yeah, you know, it... It's like a, it's like a, um, an improv experiment, you know, an exercise where the answer is always yes, but it's not just like casual things that are being put out there. It's like, would you murder? Yes. You know, would you do, I don't know, mass murder in masks in a bikini? Yes. What does that look like? This. You know, and that's that's Spring Breakers. That movie is crazy. And I think that, yeah, to your point, this this also had this just double down both feet in the deep end kind of roller coaster ride. Unflinchingly. Yeah. You know, there was never a time where like. As an audience member, I was sure of what was going to happen next. And I think that's fair for both of those movies. Yeah. Um, it also kind of reminded me a little bit of Lamb in the sense of it has this almost magical realism, this kind of, um, almost like a weird, modern, fucked up, dark fairy tale kind of thing occurring inside of it. No, yeah, for sure. You know, very, like, grim horror, like the original true st- uh, stories that are like, and and the stepsisters got their feet chopped off and, and are blinded and, you know, all of these horrible, you know, frightening things are happening to characters that are that are our main characters, you know, or character adjacent, you know, our B characters are getting horribly mangled for the sake of a children's story. And I think that that is a very fair comparison because I've also haven't stopped thinking about Lamb. Yeah. And, you know, with, with this movie... She was, I think, Alexia was on a certain level looking to feel something. Because I think that she had this very stark home life. She had a shitty distant father who, even though he was like a doctor, you know, didn't want to touch her, didn't want to, you know, talk to her, didn't want to, to be around her. And, you know, like, she, she experiences a car accident as a, as a child, and her reunion with her parents is incredibly tame. But her reunion with the car, she literally, like, runs up to the car and hugs it and kisses it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that she was on a certain level, and the reason that she settled into it was because she was looking to feel something from someone in some way. No, yeah, and honestly, I think that that's why she ends up staying with Vincent for so long, because she could have easily, you know, he he tells her, like, time and time again, like, you can leave whenever you want. You know, the door is always open. But you can always come, you know, so you can come back home. And, like, I think that that's something that she never really had, especially because of the, her relationship with her parents. Um... But also, to your point, yeah, I I completely agree. I think that she was trying to feel literally anything. And I think that that's why that first tick of her, like, killing that dude with her her hair chopstick. I'm not sure, I guess, what the the right word for it is. It's like, they they look like the 90s, like, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Um, But yeah, she, like, dabs him. It's it's gross. But um, after that moment it it really starts to just like chug in this like weird like well, what can i do next 
kind of mentality, you know, very adrenaline high moment for our character being like, well, you know, all right, this was, this was a weird, interesting, fun feeling. How can I double down, triple down on this? But then she ends up getting in, in her own way by being in a situation where she has to go further than she, I guess, even intended to do at that moment because there were a lot of people in that house. <laughs> also, I loved that, the fact that um, she's, like, killing people. And eventually it's just like, oh my gosh, how many more of you guys are here? You know, a really honest, like, a human emotion of being like, I'm exhausted. I don't feel like doing this anymore. I just actually would rather go home. Maybe I shouldn't have done any of this. Whereas, like, action movies are constantly like, like, nobody ever is, like, winded. Yeah. Michael Myers is not winded. <laughs> um, no, I, I think I think that that's all totally fair. Um, it's it's really just something else, and it's an you know I understand why some people would think like that's a really weird premise. I'm not going to watch that, and that's totally fine if you don't want to. But like I really I really think it's an incredibly interesting movie. I think it's a very bold movie. It's very striking in its visuals mm -hmm. as well. Both of these movies, we didn't really talk about it much with Power of the Dog. Both of these movies are very visually interesting as well. They're very well shot, very well framed. Um, and, you know, with this, uh, with uh, Titan, there's also a lot of very interesting color choices and color uses um, that you aren't able to do with the time period setting of The Power of the Dog. So it's it's a very visually rich film as well. Yeah, um, this this movie is on acid. And that's kind of like the best way to describe it. You know, it's everything's amped up to 11 and then even when you start the come down it still isn't what you're expecting at no. all and i the more i think about this movie the more i like it um the further away from this movie i get the more i enjoyed it the, the but the, the the initial watch through there were a lot it's of so times shocking. yeah it was very shocking and there were a lot of times where i was like i don't i don't want to watch any more of this like this is really unsettling yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that in a way that, you know, that was the, obviously that was the whole intention behind the movie itself was to be shocking, was to be, you know, skin crawly feeling. But, you know, now getting to, to really break it down with you is has been like a really eye opening experience of, of what the the possible message of this movie is. And like, I really enjoy it. Absolutely. Um, I I agree. I really enjoyed it when I, I... I did like it when I first saw it. But you're right, it is just such a jolt. Um, and it's, it's, it's... You know, it's, it's hard to, when you're first done with something like this, really, I think, 100% know how you feel about it. And so, yeah, time has really just made it all the better for me as well so if you had to give it a a rating out of five what would you give to ten? Oh god um this is such a challenge hmm 
I think I'm going to give to 10, um, I'm going to give to 10 a four. Okay. I think that that's a, the fair, honest answer because there were times when I couldn't watch this movie and I, I have to give it that, you know, for me, this movie is a four. It's, it's, it's an odd, weird, crazy ride. And like, I don't know how often I'm going to go back to it. <laughs> That's fair. Um, and also, even though I thought the movie was great and I did think that the cast did really, really well, I don't know if it was in the script side, the directing side, the performance side, but I did sometimes feel a little bit more disconnected from Alexia than I wanted to. Oh, yeah, no, I I've, I completely agree with that. I felt no, like, oneness with this character. Um, and so I think that I'd probably give it, I think that I'll give it a, a four to a four and a half. Okay. Um, I, I'll, I'll stick with four. Um, it's, it's such a rush. It's such a gut punch. Um, mm -hmm. but I like it a lot and it's definitely one that I think that I would like to own. But it's also, to your point, not one that I'm going to pop in every year. No, yeah, this isn't like a, well, I'm bored, we might as well just put on to 10. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not, that's, I have to be in the right frame of mind. Because, like, if I'm having a bad day, this isn't going to make it any better. No. no. <laughs> um, so that's pretty much all that we have for to 10. Um... I wanted to bring up a few things. So first of all, a little bit of um, news. With the newsletter that went out, Madeline Davis, our friend of the show, my sister, uh, was kind enough to go and write this great piece um, about representation, about being, you know, a woman and wanting to see women on screen and the types of women that you see on screen or that you want to see on screen. And it was a, a really fun little, like, personal piece. You know, it's not very analytical. It is very much, uh, a, a, you know, a, a personal little bit. Um, and it's called uh, The Women on the Screen, The Woman in the Mirror. And I sent it out with the newsletter, but I'm going to go and post it onto the website for everyone on Saturday, uh, which is also when I'm going to go and post all of the themes for the rest of the month and some of our other guests that we're going to be having. Uh, as far as, and that's, you know, some personal news for us. Also, March 7th, um, not directed by a woman, but the entire cast is, is women. Uh, March 7th, you can come to thefilmbuds.com and you can read my review of The Seed. I got set up with a screener. It's a Shudder uh, horror film. It was on the independent film circuit, and Shudder, the, the horror streaming platform, picked it up. And it comes out March 10th. My review is embargoed until the 7th, but you should definitely come and, and give that a read. Um, and, and that'll be available at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time on March 7th. Um... So definitely come back and, and check that out. 
moving on to sort of what we're here to talk about, which is movies and entertainment and media and television things. Um, <laughs> so the Oscars have tried to, you know, they got into that hot water for cutting some of the categories. And they've now tried to go through and be like, no, 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 you guys, you guys are missing the whole point. You know, you're missing what we're doing. We're starting the ceremony an hour earlier, and then we're going to edit all of those presentations down. You're going to see the name get read. Then the person will, will edit it, and the person will be on stage. We're just going to cut out their walk to the stage. And we'll, you know, give you the, the emotional, impactful moment of their speech. And it'll be inserted throughout all the eight categories will be inserted throughout the broadcast. This feels like something that they literally <laughs> were like, crap, we weren't going to show it. We weren't going to do any of this stuff. But now, now we are. We have to plan C this thing really hard to make everybody happy. And they're like, are the big A-lister stars going to be there when it happens? No, they will be on the red carpet. But there will be people in the house, you know, to clap for them. Oh, and that good. kind of thing. They get the pity, <laughs> the pity cap. They get the the pre-recorded claps from... From, from like a half full house. I was going to say from the, the sitcoms of the 50s that oh, they yeah. just get to play on a loop. It's actually an empty room. Yeah. So it's it's a pretty crass move. Um, but also this definitely feels like uh, we have to hard adjust because if that was your plan from all along, then why didn't you say that? They were like, oh, it got it got miscommunicated, you know, yeah, and, uh-huh, and blown uh-huh. out of proportion. From your PR people and like the like the president's PR people that like write the scripts and stuff, you're telling me that somebody did their job wrong? And so it's it's just a disaster. Honestly, just stop trying at this <laughs> point. You I would literally at this point I think be like, guys, guys, we're just gonna we're just gonna post all of the wins on and and we're gonna try this again next year. We're gonna do it up next year. Honestly, you know, I, I and I think we talked about this. I don't think that I'm gonna watch them this year. I was actually really thinking about it. I was like, you know, I've been doing film buds. I should go and try and get myself caught up. I still wanna get caught up. No, yeah, that's um, fine. I mean, we're probably more caught up than half of the people who voted for these movies. Fair. And so I was really sitting and I was like, you know, it would be nice to get caught up and watch them and talk about them and things like that. And then this kind of stuff came out and I was like, or not. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, I'm sorry. You're just, you're just, this isn't um, that old saying where like bad press, any press is good press, you know, or whatever the hell. This is, this is bad, guys. This is, this is trying to, to put the the cat back in the bag after it's across the street and you're like ah come back here i've got the bag right here and it's just not it's not gonna happen i'm so sorry it's 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 laughable yeah Um, it's a farce beyond that the only other thing there were two other bits of news that i wanted to touch on and then we'll talk about what we're watching uh one of them is that 20th Century Studios, formerly 20th Century Fox, now owned by Disney, uh, was talking about their release schedule and how it's going to differ. 
And in news that I think is is definitely probably bad news for theatrical releases and stuff like that, they're planning on making over 10 movies a year, but only about three to five of them will be released theatrically. I really want to know if movies aren't getting a theatrical release, are they still going to be willing to put it out on disc? No. Well, then, like, what makes this any different than a direct-to-DVD Disney sequel, Aladdin 5? Budget. That's great. But also, does Disney does not care about Fox. They bought them just to have less people on the playing field. And, and, to, and to get control of the parts of their IPs that they bought and didn't have full control of yet. Yeah, exactly. So now you're not going to allow these movies to go in, into the theaters. You're not going to allow me to buy it. And you're not going to advertise it well. So I'm not going to know it's coming out until two weekends after it's supposed to have been out. When you have, I don't know, Barbie 7 coming out. And you're going to make a big fucking deal out of it. I know that they don't own Barbie, but it doesn't matter. No, I get where you're at. And like, you know, it's just going to get dropped on a streaming platform but somewhere. With, it's going to be dropped like how Netflix drops things, which is 500 new things every second of every day. Hope you find something that you like. No, pretty much. Um, and actually off of that news, I will say this. Disney Plus is currently introducing... And it's really funny because I don't think we talked about it on the show. Long ago, I suggested in a conversation that we had that Disney would be smart since they were buying Fox and getting all of this content and stuff like that to implement a parental control system where you could block out certain ratings, you could put a pin code in, stuff like that. Well, because Disney is now getting all of their Netflix Marvel shows back, and there's no way to edit down those shows to make them for an American audience, you know, on current Disney Plus, uh, Disney Plus friendly, they're now also implementing a pin code based parental control lock on content for Disney Plus. Honestly, then they should just merge Hulu on to Disney and just call it Square. Just have all of the things that aren't Disney approved that they throw on Hulu just under that pin code or whatever, you know? Have it be an age-locked profile, you yeah. know? If you and all of the people that you know are of age, then you don't need any locks. No, absolutely. You could go and you could have, like, a mom and dad profile that has a pin code, and then, you know, little Johnny and little Susie's accounts, you know, or are pin code free, but also they have locks to where, you know, Johnny's 12, so it at least goes up to PG-13, but little Susie's 4, so it's all, you know, PG and G stuff. Exactly. And and maybe, who knows, they might actually care a little bit more about this IP instead of just, like, brushing it under the rug to throw it on Hulu. Because, like... It's really interesting how much they don't care about anything that isn't Disney-specific. Well, and it's also interesting because in Europe, there is no Hulu. And so all of this stuff in, in European countries and, and other stuff like that goes directly onto Disney+. Plus. You can go and watch The Last Duel on Disney+, Plus in, in Europe. And again, that's just a, just a bizarre concept because here... 
thank goodness these movies like got critically acclaimed and you know all of this attention because if they hadn't they would have literally not existed yeah in, they, in the eyes of disney and they got put all over the place you know like some uh releases that are disney owned releases have been put onto hulu um the last duel is available on hbo max so like it's it's a very all over the board system for for how they're operating all of this stuff. I feel like they maybe put it on HBO because it is the running joke that they don't care about Hulu. Um so that's kind of that's another little bit of of industry news that I wanted to to touch on. Um the last thing that I wanted to talk about was, you know, they're making that Madonna movie. They're making a Madonna movie? I thought that I had told you this. They're no, making... <laughs> no, I had, I had no idea that they were making a Madonna movie. They're not just making a Madonna movie. Does it have Madonna in it? Madonna is going to be a big part of it. She has, like, full creative control to a certain degree over Well, that's a the problem. creation of her biopic. That's, that's a dumb idea. Yeah, it's going to be terrible, but... I mean, the reason it's going to be a bad idea, dear listener, is because the moment that you get to have control over how your life looks, it's not real anymore. It's going to be sanitized and this warped version of how you saw yourself at that time. Instead of, it's it's like how we were talking about earlier, with the power of the dog not being a a rose-colored glasses version of what the living in the West was like. This is going to just be a John Wayne Western but the Madonna movie, you know, it's going to be like, oh, yeah, look at how amazing I was. Pointy tits. Yeah. And and it's going to be more of like a Bohemian Rhapsody kind of thing where like we roll out all the hit songs, we polish off the things that are more controversial and we call it a day. Yeah. And, and now we've rewritten history. And so anyone who wasn't alive to to know... Thinks that this is valid. Yeah, this is a real story now instead of just a fictionalized version of of real events. Mm -hmm. Delightful. Uh, And so they've been hosting auditions. For Madonna? For Madonna. Do you think me, a black woman, should audition for Madonna? I think I'll get it. Well, it's a... um, This is where I was really gonna enjoy your reaction. Apparently the process... For the Madonna auditions have been like a multi-day affair. What? During which okay. time you end up spending like 10 hours with Madonna's choreographer. And then you end up spending like another hour or two with Madonna. Talking about things, doing choreography with Madonna. And so it's this apparently very grueling whole day experience, 12-hour experience. And they've had, like, Julia Fox apparently in there. They've had Florence Pugh in there. Um, and it's it's this entire big to-do for her to find her Madonna. No! <laughs> Again, back to my original point. You can't look at yourself through the lens of another person. So, like, you being actively a part of the uh, the auditioning process of finding the next, the, the, the you that they're going to watch on screen is, a, is ridiculous. 
I couldn't possibly cast somebody to play me in a biopic of my life. I don't want my hands on it because I don't know what I would talk about. Whereas somebody else would make art out of my life. I would just be like, I don't know. I did school stuff for a little bit and I lived in New York, you know, whereas like, you know, I don't know. Somebody's going to make my life look like how you would tell your kids. She's a big star in New York. Yeah. But like, oh, God damn it. I think that this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, I'm glad that they've got some big names in there. Because I was honestly expecting just to, you know, what would be more interesting is for them to find a completely unknown person. Of, and build Madonna. Yes. Well, not just like build them, but like find somebody who like truly can evoke Madonna. But that's why she needs to get out of there. Because, like, any of the things that, like, she doesn't see in herself that this person may pull out, she'd be like, oh, that's not me. Or you're like, what, what are you talking about? Have you met you? That's, of course, that's you. You know? Um, and also the fact that, like, I don't think that really anybody... I think that they need, like, a professional performer. And, you know, not, an, not a movie star. A performer. Somebody who could, in theory do the Madonna musical and play Madonna eight days a week, you know. Let's... Someone who could do a Madonna tour. Exactly. It's work, but that's also why they're putting it into this, like, crazy auditioning thing. Nobody who is on the silver screen has ever worked this hard. Um, it makes me think of, to a lesser degree, apparently the audition process to be a Manson child in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was obviously not as grueling, but it was apparently a very elaborate process um, where they had, like, discussions with Quentin. Um, they had to turn in, you know, like, an audition tape, of course. Then they also had to turn in, like, a project. Like, he assigned them, like, the, the task of, like, going out and creating something. Well, I mean, again, I think that that's all just, like, a part... I think that I guess what I'm saying is mm -hmm. like we have to separate the people who are just in this for the money from the people who do this for a living. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that anybody like no offense to anyone like Florence Pugh or whomever the first person you said was. Um, but like I don't I guess I don't see that coming from them, you know. I think that they thought that this is going to just be a walk in the park. I'm going to sing a little. I'm going to dance a little. I'm going to be Madonna. Or she's literally trying to find, like, her. And at the end of the day, you're not going to find... Where did you find yourself? Where f go, go back to your beginnings, Madonna, and look there. No, that's, that's fair. Um... I think it's I think it's pretty insane, especially, you know, I can definitely understand like doing some, you know, choreo and 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 some of that sort of stuff. But like multiple days of like 12 hour days they need for a, an audition. Yeah, no, they need they need the um, the chick from Showgirls. Um, what's her name? The main one? Yeah. Elizabeth Berkeley. They need like an Elizabeth Berkeley type person. They're like, I'm willing to, to put it all out there. I can dance. I can do it. I am this character. I am Madonna. Whereas like, what are you, what are you planning on getting from this? Because at the end of the day, you're going to put a whole lot of work into probably not actually getting anything close to what you want. Because again, 
It's going to be this idolized version of Madonna instead of an actual Madonna. No, absolutely. And, like, I don't even care about Madonna's career like that. Somebody does. But, like, somebody is also perfect for this part who isn't Black Widow's adjacent sister. No, absolutely. Um... No, I think that I think that everything you said is is very fair. And I just I wanted to get, you know, an actor's reaction kind of to to some of this process. You're acting you're asking a lot of people who who make millions of dollars to to work for a, a month. Well, and there are some other names in there. I just I don't have them off the top of my head and um... But the thing is you said that there are other names. Mhm. <laughs> so that means that those names are known. Uh, lesser name knowns like a uh, Julia Garner, I think, is one of them. That sounds um, like somebody that somebody knows. <laughs> no, that's fair. So that's kind of where we're at with the the whole process. I'm um, I'm crying. I I can't believe that they're making a biopic about Madonna. She's still alive. I think that there should be a limit on like the lifespan of a person. Like I can't give you your entire life story when you're only in your sixties. No, that's that's very fair. And still actively performing to some degree. Um, That'd be like being like, all right, tomorrow we're going to make a Beyonce movie. Even though she's still at the height of her career and is still putting out music and is still a, a phenomenon of the world. But we're going to do it because of money. Well, and honestly, this if you were going to do if you were going to do a movie about Madonna back when Madonna was Madonna. Even though she's alive. You should have done it, like, ten years ago, back when Lady Gaga was Madonna. Oh, well, yeah, but now Lady Gaga is Lady Poo Poo, so <laughs> here we are. <laughs> Lady Boof! <laughs> so. She did that accent. I don't, It uh, wasn't good, but she worked hard on it. I think, I think it's going to be tough to make it a truly great film. I think it's going to be tough to make it a great biopic. You know, one of the reasons that Patton was so good was because both the main writer and the man that played Patton were like, I don't know if I like him. And had to figure him out. And so I think that having someone, again, as as we already said, with so much proximity, the person themselves, I just think it's going to be an absolute nightmare. No, I I would be shocked if this movie is remembered for anything other than oh it's gosh the Madonna movie guys you remember that Madonna movie that came out years ago yeah I never watched it it didn't look interesting like I can I can hear it now <laughs> um but that's pretty much all that I have um for us oh right ha 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 what we've been watching actually like nothing um <laughs> <laughs> We've been watching, like, some Jeopardy. We've been watching some Mythbusters. Um, I've been playing a lot of Mass Effect 2. Um, you have been doing that, yes. Dear, how do you, how do you like Mass Effect 2? Um, I'm Commander Shepard, and this, and this is, is my, my favorite, favorite shop on, on the, the Citadel. Citadel. Um, no, yeah, that's that's my review of, <laughs> of Mass Effect. Um, I think you could give me a discount. God, man, it's such a swindler. They're like, good guy points. You did mm-hmm. it. You did good guy things by Here's telling... four good guy points. For telling everybody that this is his favorite shop. He does it in every shop! <laughs> <laughs> it's not even 
official after the sixth time you've done it. <laughs> so it's it's the best running joke of the game, honestly. Um, no, I'm really enjoying the game. I liked the the first one a lot. I thought that the Citadel was really interesting. Um, but I am also enjoying getting to see different parts of this universe, you know, we're two years uh, removed from the first one. And it's just uh, getting to see new characters, but also, you know, getting to see some old characters, but like in passing, like, I don't know how I'm going to feel about Mass Effect 3, where it's like, we're all in this together. And like, we just bring the band back together in an obnoxious way. Um, because everybody was like, boo, we wanted the other people back. And they were like, we got you, fam. Don't you fret. Um, but no, I've been really, I've been <laughs> really enjoying, um, the, the, the storyline. I'm curious to see where it goes. Um, what are, what are the people with the teeth? Are the, the collectors? The collectors are the main bad guy aliens. Yeah, with the teeth. I guess they have teeth, yeah. What are you talking about? I guess they have teeth. The one that looks literally like a demon mask from Halloween, talking teeth mouth bits. It's a whole clan of them. Yeah, that's the collectors then. You said, I guess they have teeth. That's like their whole face. He's currently looking it up. Are these the people that you're looking for? No, no, the other ones. The 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 ones that used to be the Protheans or whatever. Yeah, that's the collectors. Okay, well then get a picture without their masks on. Oh, they always have the the headpiece on. Then what are the other ones? Okay, we we might as well just skip over a lot of this this <laughs> chat because I know what I'm talking about, but you're not The ones that have the weird demon faces. Where their mouth literally looks like scissor teeth. Like this. And they like... Oh, the Batarians? Is that what they're called? It's either the Batarians or the Vorcha. I don't know. All of these names sound made up to me. Nope, not that one. Okay, let me try the Vorcha. Those ones! Vorcha! There we go. We figured them out. I'm mad that you couldn't figure out that I was like the demon-faced ones and you were like, I don't know. The thing that literally looks like it spawned from the actual <laughs> bowels of hell. <laughs> and you were like, beats me. I guess they have teeth. <laughs> oh my gosh. That took way longer to get to that point than I was expecting it to. Um... <laughs> Be like I know the names of these made-up creatures. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching it, but I'm not taking notes. Like I think that I think that that's the the misintranslation. Um, yeah, those things are horrifying looking. That's fair. And I don't understand how at all they talk without lips. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it. It's just all teeth. Don't worry about it. <laughs> They look like like an extra from Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, I get what you mean. Or like the mouth of Sauron. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> somebody had a nightmare and was like, "I got an idea." <laughs> um beyond that, the only thing that I've been watching is I've still been doing the Halloween films. Uh, I have my letterbox linked below, so if you want, you can go and look at some of the reviews that I've posted. You can look at the list that I did. I've been ranking them as I go. Um, but that's pretty much all that we have for y'all. Next week, 
I haven't actually officially locked down what we're going to do for next week. It's a little bit guest dependent. Um, but it will either be one of two things. Um, it will either be historic uh, films and we'll be doing a film from the 1960s and the 1940s. Uh, the one from 1960, 1916 is um, Where Are My Children? Where are my children? And um, I think the other one is called Dance Girl Dance, and it's a Lucille Ball film um, from 1940. So that'll potentially be something that we do, or it will be an episode about anime films directed by women, because anime is a very um, male-dominated field, especially in the, in the director's chair. Again, right back to what I was saying from the very, very beginning point of this episode. You know, guys, there aren't a lot of women directors. Yeah. And there are even less of them that are acknowledged for their work. Also, random aside, I think it's weird that, like, actor gets demoted to actress when you're a woman but we don't have like directress mm-hmm. you know like why is it just that one you know why. that gets to wear a dress you know why but like i don't <laughs> search I, the feelings you understand i don't get taught by teachresses <laughs> you know like nothing else the er is not a is not a a gender-based thing it is a it's a person. It's a person that does a thing. They are a director. There's a person who directs. Well, there are some people who eventually would like to see the best actor, best actress categories abolished and instead just have two trophies handed out to a field of ten actors. I think that that's also totally fine. But again, that means that all genders have to be treated equally in the sense that, like, one doesn't have to wear a literal dress. A truss. At the end of it. Like, is it to, is it a fancy? Is it making it fancier? Oh. I just I just find it a little demeaning, honestly. No, I get that. Um, but that's all that we have for y'all this week. Uh, again, please come and, and check in on the 7th. Come in and listen to our episode next week. Sign up for the newsletter. All that jazz. And also follow our socials because I have an announcement that I'm hoping I'll be able to make within the next week or so. So stay tuned for that. Um, Thanks as always for watching and we'll catch y'all next week. Bye. Bye.